Chief Executive of Bridgewater. It will be a very insightful, special way to finish the day. However, with me right now is an academic we have worked with previously, and again, you're in for a treat. Uh, he told me his brain is a bit fried because he's been teaching all day, but um, I think that will just bring him down a peg to somewhere hover just slightly above most of our capacities anyway. So that's probably a good thing. Uh, George Serafim is the Charles M. Williams Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School here on campus, and the topic, the future of work and human capital. Please welcome George. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Colin. Um, and uh, when Colin and Amanda invited me to present here, I said, full disclaimer, that whole morning I'm going to be teaching. So if there are any really tough questions, you have to answer them. So I'm just saying. Um, so I will try to connect a little bit uh, with what you have been uh, hearing before around modern monetary theory. and. Um, it was deeply distressing to me for a couple of reasons, actually. The first reason was I'm from Greece originally. And <laughs> Greece was sandwiched between Venezuela and Russia. <laughs> so I was like, I won't take this personally, OK. Um, so that was one. The second reason is because, man, I have no cartoons up here like none of the slides. So it's going to be a little dry, okay? But, uh, but bear with me. I'm going to try and put some numbers here and try to convey some key messages. Uh, one key message is that uh, actually when we are thinking about human capital, and let me take a pause here. Human capital is fundamentally the primary driver of progress. If we actually don't invest and drive forward human capital, we're not going to make much progress fundamentally. Right? Thank you very much. A honor, but I appreciate it. Um, the second thing is that, and I really want to drive this home, is that actually what we're measuring in most of the cases, both at the macro perspective when we're looking at countries and at the micro perspective when we're looking at companies, is mostly inputs and activities, efforts, not actually outcomes. And outcomes tend to look quite different. And I want to show you that once you start measuring outcomes, you find some pretty interesting relationships when it comes to productivity, both in terms of revenue productivity and earnings productivity. And then I want to couple that with the future of work and bring there some of the work that we have been doing about which occupations and which sub-industries in an economy are going to be more affected by the future of work, show you some interesting data about the types of sub-industries that are going to be affected and how much management in those sub-industries is spending on training, employee turnover statistics, wage gaps, and so forth. And then at the end, circle back and close with what I consider an investor engagement guide in the context of human capital and the future of work. So if you want to be an active owner, what are the types of questions that you need to be asking in the context of human capital and the future of work? Because I think fundamentally what has happened is that for a long time we have moved towards risk diversification, but actually away from risk mitigation. And if we are going to mitigate risks in the future and drive economic growth, we have to actually start 
engaging and changing corporate behavior and the way the system allocates resources and stop spending money in a way that we treat some people as assets and other people as expenses, which is the way that actually our economy now is working fundamentally, okay? So um, this is probably not, not new to you, but the way that we start thinking, and, and for me it's really interesting when I hear kind of like all the discussions, by the way, full disclaimer, I'm not a macroeconomist. The reason is because when I actually took macroeconomics classes when I was getting a PhD, my professor said, there is nothing that you can predict in macroeconomics with anything that you can use. So I said, that doesn't sound very promising. Let me become a business school professor, okay? So as a result, kind of like when we start thinking about that though, in terms of economic growth, we have long recognized that actually building human capital in a country or in a firm and so forth is a fundamental driver of productivity, of growth, of capital efficiency, and at the end of the day, progress and social progress. But I will argue that the way that actually we measure, and most of my presentation is going to be at the micro level about companies, but you can extend many of the same notions at the country level. The way that we start thinking about human capital is primarily through the lenses, and what we measure is primarily through the lenses of inputs and activities, how much effort is going, how much investments we are making, and so forth. And not necessarily in terms of like the outcomes that we are getting from those measures. So think about a country. What we're measuring is investments that we make in education, how much money you are allocating. Very rarely people are measuring how productively this is actually being deployed and what are the actual outcomes, for example, on students, on human progress, and so forth. It's very much what is happening at the corporate level as well when we're thinking about training, for example. So let me show you just kind of like a little bit of the work that we have been doing. So at the corporate level, there is, of course, uh, an emergence of a lot of human capital-related data with the emergence of environmental, social, and governance frameworks. So we took many of them, including here, uh, that you can see there, and we analyzed 231 employment-related metrics and categorized them as inputs and activities versus outputs versus outcomes versus impacts. And all of those things are very, very different things, right? Kind of like input and activity is the things that I do with the hope that something is going to happen. You can think about it as I go to the gym, but it doesn't mean that actually I look good or that I am getting more physically well or that I'm healthier, right? That is much more of an outcome type of based metric, right? So that is very, very different. And we have four impact categories, and you will see why this, is why this is important when we look at human capital. You can think about it in terms of diversity and opportunity, in terms of employment quality, health and safety, or training and development. And then when you actually review the metrics, what we find is that more than 50%, about 131 of them, is primarily inputs and activities on all of those things the types of policies that you adopt, the types of investments that you make, the types of efforts that you have as a, as a management in terms of managing human capital. And when you look at outputs, much fewer. When you look at outcomes, somewhat higher, but most of it is driven from health and safety, where you can actually measure much more easily those outcomes. Like, for example, fatalities. The guy died, 
Okay, he's in front of me. I can measure the outcome, right? Um, but then you look at training and development, for example, and I will concentrate here. There isn't anything, actually, when it comes to measuring outcomes here. So when you look at this picture, we have become accustomed because, why? Because it's much easier to actually measure inputs and activities, one. And second, because from a management perspective or from a policy perspective, it's much easier for me to be held accountable for what I control, right? Which is basically inputs and activities. This is how much I am putting into the system, right? And people in general are a little bit reluctant to be held accountable for things that they cannot control because there are many things that are influencing outcomes, not only your inputs and activities, right? And this in general is called the accountability gap, okay? when you have a gap between what you control and what you actually want to get at achieving. So I want to drive home that actually inputs is very, very different thing from outcomes. In some sense, in many actually of the cases, literally this morning, I was teaching um, in executive education a case on how measuring and incentivizing on inputs leads to distorted outcomes because it, you provide perverse incentives, and you need to start measuring outcomes in order to provide the right incentives. So let me give you a simple example of how we are thinking about it. So a lot of people actually in the context of human capital, they're saying, are you training your people? So they are looking at training expenditures, which is classic input type of metric, right? In this paper that we have here, and you can find it online as well, we propose that let's take a, a, a different aspect to it. Let's try to measure outcomes here. And let's try to measure outcomes here. For example, you can imagine that within an organization, you can try and understand the progression in wages, so the change in employee wage for your median worker, let's say, that you have surveyed, relative to the starting employee wage and the training expenditures. So you try to understand, in some sense, the outcome relative to the inputs, instead of understanding the inputs. And you actually multiply that by the inverse of employee turnover, okay? So I am pretty tired by now. Does everybody understand why I'm multiplying by the inverse employee turnover? Okay, truthful person. So, um, the reason why I'm doing that is because effectively what you want to do is you want to give credit to the manager and the allocator that is going to both train people and retain the people, okay? So effectively, if I get high outcomes relative to my inputs and at the same time, I'm creating a work environment where I can actually retain the people, that is even better for me. Right? from a human capital perspective. Now I'm building human capital inside my organization. So the higher is the employee turnover, the lower is that ratio, and as a result, the higher is my human capital development index. Okay? And once you do that, of course, you can say, great, George, you know, you're an academic, you dream. You say, but how can we do that? This is impossible to measure. Why? Because actually the data is not there. I say, fair enough. The data is not there. Let me give you my best shot at creating that. So I say the data is not there to do that exactly because, first of all, I don't have wage data at the employee level to allow me to do that. But 
I can construct some proxies that get close to that. Okay, so we took uh, Bloomberg data between 2005 and 2017. We have about 9,000 observations for a little bit more than 1,000 companies globally. They come for a wide variety of industries. You can see here 70 industries and 63 countries. And we construct a proxy. So we're trying to get close to that. So because I cannot measure it for an individual employee, I measure it at the firm level. And at the firm level, what I do is basically I look at the progression of wages relative to the number of employees to make sure that employee growth or decline doesn't affect my ratio on the numerator. And again, I do that in the denominator. And I have employee turnover data, so I can calculate that. So I use my proxy. I say, fair enough. I throw the white towel. I cannot do exactly what you want me to do, but I get close enough. So I get close enough, and then I find super interesting things. So the first thing that I find is that basically, when you look at the relationship between training, the input, and future productivity, either revenue productivity or earnings productivity, what's the correlation? Zero. It's a flat line. But actually, when you look at the human capital development metric that is outcome driven, you find pretty interesting positive relationships between human capital development now and future productivity, okay? Measured as three-year and five-year future growth in productivity. And the way to interpret this is that if you go from the zero percentile to the hundredth percentile of the human capital development metric, so this is what is here, you actually move almost 20% higher in terms of revenue productivity and about 12% higher on earnings productivity, okay? Now, you can say, well, why is the slope less than this? And my response is going to be, because this is how the accounting works. So what this shows you is that actually firms that develop more human capital, according to my metric, they are able to increase their revenue productivity by about 20%, but because of the increases in the wages, that eats some of the revenue productivity, but you still get earnings productivity, even that. So the way to think about it is that on average, I can actually develop human capital, I get 20% higher revenue productivity in the extremes, 12% of that is captured by the firm, 8% of that is captured by employees, on average, okay? And this is, this is uh, the difference between outcomes and inputs. And then you can ask me, okay, so which industries, right? How do they look on the, your human capital development metric? And here is a picture, and I have, uh, I have allocated them according to sectors to drive home a few messages. One is that you can find industries in the value chain that exist on all types of human capital development metric. So on low, on medium or high. In general, low are the ones that are actually experiencing declines, mostly in the human capital development metric. Medium are the stale ones, and high are the ones that are growing the human capital development. So within the sectors, you can actually find wide distribution, and you find some pretty interesting also um, developments when you look at within the value chain of an industry as well. So for example, when you look at auto components, servicing automobile manufacturers and so forth. And 
the, this is the full picture with all the sectors here and how they look. So I will, I will, you will have all this data. You, you can digest it um, later on. Now, I want to bring that infrastructure now and that measurement technology to discuss about the future of work. So everybody is discussing about how technology is going to affect jobs. And I think fundamentally, this is a very, very difficult thing to um, understand, forecast, and with preciseness, say whether actually those jobs are going to disappear or those jobs are going to be there, but they are going to be different and so forth. And this is what mostly people argue for. So you will hear, for example, there is a report that says 500 million jobs will disappear. 200 million jobs will disappear. A billion jobs will disappear. So we don't try to do that. Because I think fundamentally this is a very, very different thing. And a very difficult thing. But where we start from is that fundamentally technology is going to reshape the types of mix of skills, knowledge, and capabilities that are required to perform tasks. So even if a job doesn't disappear, actually will change what do I need to know to perform my task, or what are the tasks that need to be performed within a sub-industry. So understanding that, we embark on developing a sub-industry level of an economy, probability of automation, to understand how human capital is going to be affected in each one of 160 sub-industries of an economy. And to do that, we start by the occupation level. So we have data on 702 occupations from a recent uh, research paper that actually assigns probability of automation of tasks in different occupations. And this is their data. This is not our data, basically. We have just plotted their data. This is not original. We just take it. Okay. So this is like when you go to McDonald's, you don't make the burger, you take it. We took the burger here, okay? So what you see here is that for a lot of occupation, the probability of automation is basically zero. But then you have actually quite a bit of distribution and you have with a pretty high certainty a lot of automation that's going to happen at occupations. But when you look at occupations from an investor perspective, it's actually not very useful. Right? Because you don't tend to analyze occupations. You tend, if you are doing, for example, fundamental analysis, you tend to analyze strategy and growth and profitability within the context of competition. So at the sub-industry level. So we try to take that from the occupation level to the sub-industry level. So I will give you a simple example of that. So for example, you take an occupation, computer programmers. Then we actually know the percentage of that occupation that tends to be employed in different sub-industries. For example, here, 4.46% of that industry employment is happening within the industry of computer systems design and related services. 4.19% in software publishers. This means that this is the percentage of their employment that's actually computer programmers. Because we know that, and we know all the occupations within an industry, for example, textiles here. These are occupations, these are textiles. So we know the sub-industry, so we know the occupation probability of automation, and we know the relative weight of employment of each occupation within the sub-industry. I can come up with a weighted average of that that is at the sub-industry level then. 
uh, probability of automation. And once I do that, this is how it looks like at the sub-industry level. So now I am the McDonald's. I have created that, right? This is mine now, okay? So this is how it looks like. And one of the interesting things that you see here, and I want to remind you that, it looks quite different from this. So this is all the occupations that you can find in an economy, and you find a lot of people that are going to be unaffected. One of the insights is that those occupations are not in the corporate sector. They're mostly in the types of companies that you find, like massage therapists and hairdressers and so forth, that are not in part of the corporate sector. When you actually look at the types of companies that are in equity markets and fixed income markets and so forth, you find a much higher probability of automation for most sub-industries. But of course, there is still a distribution here, and this ranges from 0% to pretty much kind of like 100%, right? So once you have that infrastructure, then you start understanding what is happening within its sub-industry at, um, at the competition level. So I will show you here a representative example of three metrics that we look at. And these are not three random metrics. The reason why I'm looking at those is because all three effectively, in some form, enter the human capital development metric. Training expenditures, employee turnover, and wages. Okay, So all of them are part of that. And then once you start doing analysis, you find some really interesting things. For example, when you split sub-industries based on low versus high probability of automation, you find that the high probability of automation, already management is spending more money in training spent per employee. So about 260 bucks per employee for training here in those sub-industries versus 320 here. So it seems that in those sub-industries, already people are trying to build training and skills and knowledge to actually transition people to other types of jobs and tasks. The question becomes, as I will mention later, is what types of skills and training are you getting and how productive those are? And we don't know the answer to that. The second one is look at the changes in the, the difference in the turnover rates as well. When you look at high probability sub-industries of automation, turnover rates are substantially two percentage uh, higher meaning that you are actually experiencing bigger retention problems, and those are most likely going to exaggerate in the future and trying to understand that. And the average wage gap actually follows a different, a different domain. So you find that actually in the high probability of automation, you find lower wage gap. This is the median CEO to worker pay in those companies, which is about 56 here versus 70 times in low probability of automation. And if you expect that actually you're going to build skills here, you should be able to find that over time that will probably kind of like that difference will get exaggerated even more as you're trying to understand those differences. So then we embarked on asking the question of what are the skills and the knowledge that will bridge the gap between the high and the low probability of automation sub-industries? I want to show you some example here. So as we said, we, we collected the data on all types of abilities, oral expression, speech clarity, reaction time, and so forth, the skills, 32 of them, and the knowledge, 
that goes into occupations that exist within the sub-industry. And we try to understand which ones you need to be looking at in order to understand that per employee, those 320 bucks that is being allocated per employee are likely to be good value for money. Okay. And this is what we came up with. When you look at skills, there are a couple of things that primarily cluster around systems analysis and systems evaluation, of course, of programming and so forth. In terms of knowledge, here are a few of the things that you see here. And there was a lot of basically abilities that have to do with reasoning. And for people in this room, that might not be surprising, but I can tell you that when you go inside most companies, this is not what people learn. So we, need to, we really need to understand that, and we need to uh, digest that, that this is not what is happening right now. So let me, let me close with a few ideas for how to think about human capital in the context of the future of work. I think one of the primary things is first understanding how technology is being implemented and understanding how the organization is making decisions, what is the strategy for implementation of the technology, and what is the intended outcome from automation or the implementation of artificial intelligence and so forth. And the second piece is about retraining and reskilling employees. And I think one of the most important components here is understand who is being trained inside an organization. Lower skilled people, higher skilled people, lower wage people, higher wage people, and so forth, and being skilled and retrained on what? Fundamentally right now, I feel that we are probably misallocating a lot of resources thinking about those issues. And we need to start getting much more active in terms of asking the right questions in order to be able to find the right answers. And I think for, for me, the biggest component here would be understanding who is being trained and what is being trained on. And the other piece is how this actually affects one, employee engagement, and having a robust understanding about how those efforts flow into employee engagement. Two, how is being flowing into recruitment? So are you getting the right skills within the organization? And three is what is the overall actually human resources strategy in terms of thinking about the implementation piece. I think you can find some leading examples of organizations that are really leading the pack on this, such as IBM and so forth, but the vast majority of organizations, both at the corporate level, where I live in, but also I would say at the government level, are far behind thinking through those things. And I think fundamentally, if we actually don't solve the primary problem of what is happening here, which is basically the system has stopped including and creating value for a lot of people out there, then we will still be talking about monetary and fiscal solutions, putting band-aids on a much more fundamental problem, which is when you leave this place, because we're pretty close to the Back Bay, and you go to Matapane and Dorchester and so forth, 
the system is not working for most of the people. And this is the fundamental problem. And if we don't actually treating people as expenses and treating them as assets that we need to invest and build them up, my sense is that we're not going to make much progress in the, in the future. So you can also read uh, the rest of the paper uh, that's being posted online and we will be doing, and we have done a lot of work on that whole uh, piece. And I'm, uh, tomorrow also you are going, I uh, just want to call out, you will hear from my colleague Rebecca Henderson on inequalities, building on that piece, and David Wood uh, as well. So um, hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, George. You teach a program called Reimagining Capitalism yes. as part of the MBA program at the Harvard Business School. And you recently won the 2018 Aspen Institute Ideas Worth Teaching Award for that program. Yep. Why? <laughs> you should ask them. Uh, <laughs> um, I think for a couple of reasons. So let me, let me answer slightly differently. I won't say why we won the award. I will say why I think this is important for students to actually attend as a class and why I, I believe that actually a successful CEO of 21st century will be taking such a course, will be exposed to those ideas, and will be exposed to those learnings. First of all, because I put Mark Zuckerberg up there. I say, like, lots of you guys want to be like Mark. But this is embarrassing when he's sitting in Congress. So I say, do you want this to happen to you? Nobody wants this to happen to them. And then he goes on to say, well, I misunderstood my responsibility and the responsibility of Facebook. I say, well, let's discuss about that, what that is, and how do you manage it? Because it's one thing saying, you know, you have some type of responsibility and so forth. The question is, you know, it's Monday morning, what do you do about it, right? So the course is really, it's Monday morning, what do you do about it? And it's actually using the principles of general management to prepare students for dealing with issues of human capital, with dealing of issues of climate change, with dealing of issues of inequality and so forth. And it's not... I think, and this is part of the important piece, is that it's not a, a hope in the sky kind of, kind of course, but it's actually a general management course. So it's saying, what is your strategy? What are your targets? What are the type of people that you recruit? How do you balance the tension between long-term and short-term? How do you actually measure those outcomes? How do you respond to when a competitor actually is cutting corners and it's undermining your strategy and so forth? So I think fundamentally something that we teach about general management, we, we aspire to train people that actually become CEOs. We have most, of, actually the highest percentage of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. And I don't think we'll be serving our students if we don't teach them that, because I think we will be preparing them for failure, not for success, if we don't teach them that. But it is a contrarian view, wouldn't you, would you say? Your, your views and what you're teaching are, are quite contrarian. Uh, in what way? Uh, the traditional business has thought uh, much differently about 
the future of work and about human capital. Yes. And how to reward yes. how to reward it and how to yes. how to measure it. And and we covered that actually, right? I think part of the I think part of the strength is to discuss those alternative views. So for example, we have a whole class on Milton Friedman. Whole class. And we say, what are the assumptions? Because I think that's what it comes to. What are the assumptions that he's making? There are six assumptions. I put them on the blackboard. I say, do you believe in them? And we debate that. Because if you believe in them, I'm with you. I actually agree with you. But if you actually think that the assumptions don't work, then the model breaks down, as any model. And people come out on different perspectives, and I think that's a healthy debate at the end of the day. But my sense is that those assumptions around complete markets and no information asymmetry and well-functioning political process and so forth that he's, he has been talking about, they don't work. So the paper is on the app, the conference app, and of course uh, also on George's website. We're about to go to our final table discussion for the day. Uh, but just before we do, George, can you reflect a little bit on the recent roundtable uh, announcements by Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan, Larry Fink, BlackRock, uh, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater, and so yep. on? Yep. So he here's my short take on that. And I was interviewed by the roundtable before they, they did that because we have done a lot of work on corporate purpose. So we have a series of papers on exactly that point. So bullet points. I will give you bullet points. One, it's basically all BS and um, cheap talk and marketing if actually the people inside the organization don't believe in it, okay? So purpose is not about the words that you will put on a table, teamwork and innovation and respect. Of course, all organizations want to be high innovation and teamwork and respect, right? Um, what we have found is that actually not that many organizations inside actually employees believe in it. And that's where the strength is coming from in terms of driving performance and outcomes, right? So that's one point. The second one is that, well, you cannot say that I want to deliver for all the st stakeholders if you don't actually have an accountability mechanism of how can I tell if you're delivering on those things? And part of the problem is that as a society, we have invested enormous resources in society to get the financial outcomes right, right? So I started my career actually by observing who, who has actually been at an IFRS board meeting, like literally where they create the accounting standards. Who, who has been in the actual board meeting, sitting in the back room and looking at like lease accounting when it changes or insurance accounting and so forth? I have, I spent, it was painful, but I spent years. Um, so, you know, we spend enormous amount of resources, but when you are looking at, for example, customer outcomes and employee outcomes and so forth, we actually haven't spent those resources. So there is no accountability mechanism, really, to be able to tell whether you're doing a good job or a bad job, right? And this is actually one of the reasons that at HBS, we started a new initiative with Sir Ronald Cohen and the Impact Management Project and so forth on, that we call impact-weighted accounts of understanding how can we actually measure impact, value it, monetize it, and reflect it in the financial statements so then you can have actually impact-weighted financial metrics 
that introduce some of that accountability structure. So I would say it's not about chip talk, it's about how actually people feel and believe in it. And one of the things that we find is that, guess what happens in organizations? Once you actually get data from the senior management is up here, you go to the middle management and you ask them about the purpose of the organization and whether the organization has purpose, it declines. Guess what happens when you go to frontline workers? It declines even further and so forth. And the second one is about accountability structures, and I think that's super important as well. Okay, well, uh, George, is, uh, George has got a few credentials, actually. Um, I hope you guys are listening. Uh, he's been voted the uh, top 20 most popular author of business authors, of which there are 12,000 in the survey. Um, he is a, not only a teacher here, but is a regular presenter to the World Economic Forum, and and other places, uh, and frankly, George, you're a pretty smart guy. You've got um, a preeminent ESG corporate performance uh, credentials. We're now having a conversation, it seems, that is getting real pushback on whether companies are responsible for more than just their shareholders. That's what is surprising, perhaps, about the recent movement. Yep. You've been banging on about this for decades saying that we're on a train crash collision course with the rest of society unless we actually start to understand environment, uh, consumers, employees, as well as shareholders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, will, I want to put an asterisk there, right? I think, which is, we shouldn't take government off the hook for their responsibility of doing their part because actually governments have fundamentally failed all of us, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to action around inequality and so forth. So it's not just that we, we should look at business as the savior of everything. Business can do as much as it can do within the institutions that they operate. Same thing for investors and so forth. But I think fundamentally the idea in the world that we're living right now, with the institutions that we're living right now, that we can all throw our hands up and say, not my responsibility. So, because I can't say that, right? I'm at a business school, not at the school of divinity. And, and <laughs> I understand. But what do you say to the to the to those that criticise you for being uh, uh, not in touch with what capitalism is about, and that that's these are left wing ideas that, that don't actually connect with the American dream? Yeah. So it's it's very funny. Whenever I go to Europe, I'm a right wing guy, and here I'm a left wing guy. So I it's kind of like it's kind of like confusing to me. But I think, <laughs> it's really funny, uh, but, but I think fundamentally, I, I, I believe fun, fundamentally in markets and well-functioning markets. Part of the problem is that we are not having well-functioning markets because if you go back to the fundamentals and you say what makes markets function effectively is when you price externalities, when you have the proper policies in place, when you have equal opportunity, not necessarily equal outcomes, equal opportunity, and you don't have equal opportunity for everyone and so forth, right? So I think reimagining capitalism is actually about restoring that trust in those institutions so you can actually have well-functioning markets, which is what capitalism is all about at the end. It's about meritocracy, about freedom. If you don't have equal opportunities, if you don't have pricing of externalities, you don't have meritocracy or freedom. 